So welcome everybody. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us today. Um, my name is Maggie Hendry and I'm the Chair of Interaction Design and Graduate Media Design Practices here at Art Center in Pasadena. I'm Bob Dierig, the Director of Archives and Special Collections at Art Center College of Design and um, we're the co-PIs on this project. We have two sign language interpreters today, Courtney Nimmersham and Mara Bassani Santa Maria. They'll be visible at all times and you can pin them. And you can do this by clicking on the ellipses at the top right hand corner of Courtney or Mara's little square. Um, and just click on there and select pin video and they'll be available throughout the afternoon. We also have closed captioning. To access your closed captions, go to the bottom of the Zoom tray, at the bottom of the Zoom screen, and click on the little up arrow, and then on the click on the closed caption icon. Um, notice that the captions are very slow to display and may miss some words. And ironically, these are exactly the kind of accessibility issues and challenges that we've come together to discuss today. The event today is hosted by the Art Center Library, Interaction Design Department, and our colleagues in Design Matters. It was also made possible through a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, for which we're really grateful. And we want to start this event with a land acknowledgement. Uh, we recognize that Art Center College of Design is situated on native land belonging to the Gabrielino Tongva tribe. As we are existing remotely in 2021, there are many of us that are working, living, and occupying other indigenous territories. These other territories adjacent to Art Center belong to the Chumash, Fernandeño, Tataviam, Serrano, Mikanakan, Tongva, and Kits peoples. We also acknowledge that the land of California belongs to nearly 200 tribal nations. We recognize this incredible resilience in the face of systemic dehumanization and oppression that indigenous communities both local and worldwide have endured, as well as the enduring strength of spirit that their communities have shown in the wake of colonization and violence. It is our hope that this land acknowledgement is a first step toward rebuilding our relationships with these communities and to work together in an inclusive and equitable way toward protection of their lands, culture, as well as communities. So Art Center is committed to maintaining a civil, safe and inclusive environment free from any bias, coercion or harassment, where we honor all our identities and respect and celebrate them. So we ask that everyone participating today be open to the views of others and communicate in a respectful manner. We also have Q&A in the Zoom, as well as the Slack channel. So we ask that the same respect and inclusion be extended to these shared conversation spaces. With a project like this, there are lots of wonderful partners and collaborators we've been working with who we'd like to quickly recognize here. Um, the symposium is held in conjunction with a studio class that's going on this term. And we wanna thank the faculty teaching the course, Elise Coe, Joshua Halstead, and Todd Masilko, and our TA, Evan Stalker. The team at Michigan State University's Usability Accessibility Research and Consulting Group, Jennifer Ismerl, Gray Pierce, and Sarah Swearinga, and Sarah is one of the co-PIs on our project. They've been instrumental in guiding us through the IRB process and providing guidance on doing participatory design with people with disabilities. Uh, three archivists who you'll meet really soon who helped co-write the Society of American Archivists guidelines for accessible archives for people with disabilities, Michelle Gans, Lydia Tang, and Sarah White. Uh, we also wanna thank the Braille Institute Library, uh, sorry, Braille Institute Los Angeles Center, regional director, 
Linda Binsky and former librarian Reed Streege. And we want to thank our Design Matters team here at Art Center, including Jennifer May and Stephen Butler, our Art Center Library Director Mario Asensio and the entire library staff, our development team, including Daryl Morey and Christine Hansen, and other faculty and staff uh, on the project team who have helped, including Sean Donahue, Sam Holtzman, and Kathy Folgate. And just a big thanks to everyone speaking today and attending today. Um, we, we really appreciate it. To give a bit of an overview of, of how the afternoon is scheduled, um, we're going to get started in a couple minutes with the sessions, and the day will go until about 5 p.m. There will be one 30-minute break between the two sessions, which should be around 2.45 p.m. Pacific time. Everyone is muted and cameras are not on. Uh, for all the attendees. We will use the Q&A feature that Maggie talked about a second ago in the Zoom webinar. Feel free to add questions throughout the event, and there will be two times at the end of each session when we will address the questions. You also have the option in the Q&A to ask anonymously. Um, readings and resource list will be added to the Slack channel. If you wish to add any resources, use the resource channel in Slack. And we'll put the Slack link in the chat. We also have two amazing illustration students, Osef and Audrey, who will be taking visual notes throughout the sessions, and we will check in with them at the end. Uh, lastly, the event is being recorded, and the recording along with the transcript will be posted to our project website, and everyone attending will receive an email with a link once it's posted. The symposium is actually the kickoff for a two-year Institute of Museum and Library Services grant. And we're, as Bob mentioned, we're holding it in conjunction with a class that has the same title. Students in the class are immersing themselves in access-led design and working with people with disabilities to co-design prototypes that hopefully make digital archives more accessible. The students are also coming back tomorrow to participate in smaller working sessions with the project team and some of the speakers from today. This symposium is one of the key ways that they're informing their design directions. Today, our speakers are designers, archivists, librarians, educators, scholars, and activists. This multidisciplinary approach places the topic of archives into a broader context. So we'll be exploring topics like participatory and inclusive design, accessibility and emerging technologies. We realize that the day will bring about as much discussion as answers and the old and new friends will be meeting in the virtual space. So we will be keeping the conversation going through the Slack channel. And as Bob mentioned, we'll be posting updates about the project on our project website. So over to Bob to introduce and moderate our first session. Thanks, Maggie. Um, the first session we're going to do today is called Where Are We Now? Understanding Today's Landscape for Access to Archives, Tools and Challenges. First, we'll hear a design perspective on this topic uh, for about 15 minutes. And then we'll follow that up with a presentation on archives accessibility guidelines for 15 minutes. Following that, we'll spend 30 minutes, uh, including speakers talking about the human experience and challenges of accessing and working in archives for people with disabilities. And finally, we'll have 15 minutes for a Q&A, but as we said before, feel free to drop in questions throughout. So to kick it off, uh, talking about design, 
which seems appropriate, uh, is Joshua Halstead, who I'll introduce. Joshua Halstead is Assistant Professor of Disability and Design at Art Center College of Design. Halstead has lectured in academic and industry settings from Stanford to Google and is co-author of the forthcoming book, Extra Bold, a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary field guide for graphic designers to be published in the spring of 2021. Joshua is also one of our amazing faculty who is teaching the class that's held in conjunction with this event. In this talk, Halstead provides a broad overview of key logical tensions in the disability design space. Should designers strive to facilitate independence or interdependence with their designs? Should products be unassuming or should they brandish disability identity? Communities of practice have different options and Halstead seeks to elucidate this otherwise clandestine discursive landscape. So Josh, I will uh, hand it over to you. Okie doke. Awesome, awesome, awesome. <clears throat> I'm gonna share my screen. One second. Okay. Can never figure out how to do this. Okay. And make sure <clears throat> that this works. Can you see my full screen? Yes. Yep. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll I'll get started. Um, let me actually just start my timer. Okay, um, so thank you so much for the introduction. This is really awesome. I'm so, so, so excited about today. Um, the title of my talk, which will be explained further, is From Point to Periphery, Material Discursive Kinscapes Within Contemporary um, Disability Design Theory and Praxis, a bunch of words that, again, will be explained. Um, I'm gonna start with a story, like I typically do. So this morning, um, I stubbed my toe uh, on the on my front door. <laughs> this is uh, not not a good experience for anyone who has done so or observed someone who has. Um, what happened was basically my whole entire world got funneled down to my toe, right? So before I I hit my toe, I was thinking about the day. I was thinking about you know the presentation. I was drinking uh, coffee and eating a croissant, and then all of a sudden, um, I hit the door, and my whole entire world again gets funneled down into this kind of throbbing uh, little pinky toe. And um, it's it made me start thinking about the connections actually, because I'm a nerd and because of course I'm doing this presentation about the connection between how we frame disability um, and the things um, that we make. Um, so before I get into that, um, I'll just kind of explain, it's, it's interesting. So I, of course, I'm curious about how pain works um, pain uh, is primarily a perceptive, a perceptive process. So when I hit my toe against the door, what happened is that there were nerve cells that detected uh, tissue damage. They shot these uh, signals up to my brain, which moved information around and then centered on something called um, the salience network. 
And the salience, salience network has one job. That job is to kind of um, tell you what to focus on and what to ignore um, in order to prompt an action, right? So in this case, the salience network said, ow, 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 that really hurts. Um, moved, um, oh, I'm gonna turn off my phone. Um, shot motor signals down my leg, um, hit the nerve cells again, and then acted or uh, caused my foot uh, to pull back, right? So the idea of pain is this movement between reflection and action. Um, now, when it comes to um, uh, disability design, um, again, I think that um, it might not be the toe, but it's our framing of disability that causes this um, process of reflection and action that really um, moves not just um, discourse, but materials, bodies, systems, et cetera, according to a certain way of being. Um, so just to explain two terms that I'm using, um, first material discursive just means that this idea of discourse talking, um, whether it's through media, through literature, through um, design classrooms or design uh, professional spaces, um, and the things that get produced materiality are entangled and inseparable. We can't really separate what, what it is that we think and the ideas that we um, acknowledge and integrate in, uh, from the things that we, we actually make. Um, and then kinscapes is this uh, term I'm uh, borrowing um, from uh, indigenous scholar um, Barbara McDougall, um, who, who studies um, indigenous cultures and um, kinscapes was originally used to kind of signify uh, geographic, uh, geographically specific networks of families that work together in order to survive. Um, so I'm using this term specifically looking at how discourse um, on disability and design calls into being um, different assemblages, groupings of knowledge systems and socio-political systems, bodies in and out of the process, technologies, et cetera. Um, so what I'm going to do in this short 15 minute um, kind of lightning talk is to basically uh, talk about a research project that I did um, and a, a kind of an ongoing project um, that I have uh, for mapping this disability design space as it relates to discourse and the things that are produced. Um, and, you know, I think it's important um, to this conversation, just so we have some type of a context uh, for uh, what our speakers will be talking about, because like any good um, uh, conference, we've brought in a bunch of diverse perspectives. So I'm trying to kind of create this foundation. Um, so in the literature review, I was looking at um, all kinds of <clears throat> different media types, uh, specifically um, as they relate to the design practices, so graphic design, industrial design, architecture, landscape architecture, urban architecture, et cetera, um, over the past, uh, well, between 2012 uh, up to very recently. And the key takeaway that I've found is that one's theoretical framework of disability, right? So how, what we think about disability uh, combined with our attitude or methods, method, methodological approach to design shuts in and shuts out certain ideas, discourses, bodies, social alliances, data that we're using in the design process, the technologies we're using and more in the kind of action or enterprise of design, right? So what, how we're thinking about both disability and design will both you know, open up and foreclose different ways of doing the whole design thing. 
Um, <clears throat> here's just a couple of samples. I show it um, just to uh, highlight that I wasn't only, I, I intentionally was looking at um, mainstream sources. So sources that are coming from um, corporations or larger universities such as Occidental College of Art and Design in Canada, who um, has uh, been influential in kind of piloting this inclusive design guide. Um, and Microsoft with their inclusive design guide and then also more marginalized uh, perspectives from disability um, cultures um, like the radical visibility queer crypt dress reform movement manifesto. Um, so I was trying to kind of um, sketch a pretty robust um, uh, perimeter around what I was studying and therefore kind of opening up uh, what I was coming to as conclusions. Um, so here are some main tensions uh, that I found, um, which I'm calling dialectics, but we can think of that just tensions, right? Little disagreements um, uh, of disability design, right? And this, these are the questions that folks are asking, you know, should our designs be practical? Should they be performative? Uh, should we kind of think about our solutions as being efficient or should we kind of embrace uncertainty? Um, should uh, we focus on disability design as a way to innovate or is the kind of action of disability design really meant to um, cultivate and prompt collective action toward kind of emancipation and, and uh, liberation, right? These are all kinds of different perspectives that are moving around um, in the disability design space depending on where you show up. Um, and underneath that, right, as I'm looking at it, and these are kind of codes, um, I started to kind of realize, well, it really depends on where we are with disability. Do we think of disability as an individual thing? Do we think of it as a social thing? Do we think of it as kind of this toggling between or a liminal state between an individual and social or political phenomena? Um, so really quickly, I'm just gonna review some disability um, frameworks. Um, again, not in depth, so don't worry about reading these. Um, this is a teaching deck as well, so I'll just explain it. Um, but when it comes to like the individual <clears throat> ways of framing, we typically have um, the medical model at, uh, on offer. We have the functional limitations model on offer. Um, and the models that I'm presenting aren't linear. They all kind of exist still today. Um, it just depends on, again, where you're showing up. When we're conceiving of disability as a medical phenomena, we're typically thinking of it as um, a bodily deviance from a norm. Um, and typically that's a medical norm constructed through medical knowledge. Um, and uh, so disability is typically thought of as a disease or a pathology, um, <clears throat> a struggle, um, et cetera. The functional limitations model um, changes a little bit um, where it doesn't focus on disability, but it focuses on one's capacity to function in daily tasks, um, uh, you know, throughout one's day, week, um, et cetera. Both the functional limitations model and um, the medical model situate and locate disability within the body and they don't um, think about intervention or rehabilitation when it comes to the social environment, right? Things outside of the body. Um, in contrast, we have the social model, um, which argues that the oppression that, um, and discrimination, marginalization that disabled people face um, is due to uh, physical and social barriers. Um, so instead of locating disability and disability struggles um, within the body, it's locating um, disability at this kind of mismatch or misalignment between bodies um, that aren't um, uh, compliant with norms um, uh, and, and uh, environments that basically don't plan on these bodies being around, right? 
Um, so both the social model and minority group uh, model or socio-political model um, are ways to kind of conceive of disability as, as primarily this kind of social um, disjuncture uh, between bodies and environments. And this, these are really important concepts um, for designers. Um, the last three that I'll move through again quickly is this idea of critical um, disability theory, disability justice, and a political relational model. And I do this because what, what happens in disability design is there is actually a growing amount of academics looking at this. Um, so we have to include academic um, understandings of disability in order to understand what's happening. Um, so critical disability theory, the most important thing that I wanna highlight here is that it actually says, well, it's neither here nor there. We, we can't throw away the body um, by focusing purely on society. Um, and we can't throw away society by throw, uh, focusing purely on the body. So it's toggling in between and it's kind of a liminal um, stage. And it's important here um, because we start to recognize the importance of acknowledging the testimonies of disabled people um, as the experts of their own lived experience. Um, when it comes to the integration of disability studies, I'm sorry, a disability justice, we start to uh, do further questioning, though critical disability theory does as well, of what who those bodies are. Um, so disability justice is foregrounding um, multiply marginalized folks. It was created by queer women of color who are also disabled activists and continues um, to really think about disability um, as a multi-issue um, thing. So looking not just at disability, but ableism and seeing how ableism um, overlaps with other interlocking systems of domination, like white supremacy, colonization, capitalism, etc. Right. And a political relational model is just kind of going back um, to this idea of um, <clears throat> liminality. Um, so beneath all of this as well, is this kind of attitudinal or methodological approach to design where we're either seeing design, um, emphasizing design as, a, as practical, right? Specifically a practice, um, or we're seeing it as processual, more, more emphasizing the process, um, or we're seeing design as something that can be really imaginal and think about, you know, speculations about the future, et cetera, right? So all of these kind of mental models for disability and design are creating these key tensions um, that we see, right? So moving through universal design or adaptive design or inclusive design you know, up into critical design, you know, universal design is conceiving of bodies, um, is locating disability more so in the body, um, and is also kind of asking, well, what are the, you know, how, how wide of a net can we cast when it comes to the bodies that are included in the products and the experiences, the services that we design? Um, adaptive design is typically coming um, at the back end of um, uh, projects where we might have either architecture or digital architecture for that matter that's inaccessible that then kind of gets um, adapted to make, make it accessible. Um, inclusive design is really focusing on who's involved in the process, right? Um, so again, kind of sometimes taking um, when it's applied to disability design, a disability justice approach where it's really thinking about um, you know, what, what bodies are most impacted by the designs that we create and how can we make space for them, um, not only to kind of claim expertise of their own, own lived experience, but also be co-designers as well. Um, I would put participatory design in this camp as well. 
Um, and then critical design is really more of an attitude around design um, that poses evocative questions, challenges, um, and also challenges normative assumptions and imagines uh, alternate futures. Um, and all of these kind of ways of thinking about and moving through design are being operationalized and mobilized um, by different communities uh, to create different things. Um, Bob, how am I doing on time? Because I, I lost my track and I want to make sure I haven't. Um, like yeah, um, you got a, a couple more minutes. Okay, cool. Um, so basically, I mean, I'll probably just jump ahead um, to an example of critical design. Um, this is a project by Sarah Hendren called Slope Intercept. And again, kind of thinking about the idea of, yes, it should be inclusive. We're, we're solving a real world problem, but at the same time, um, <clears throat> we're kind of bringing in um, other, other interactions um, to the design space and other bodies into the space and, and specifically questioning um, uh, kind of meanings and representations of disability also. So um, in Harvard Square, there's a problem. There was a problem um, when Sarah created this project uh, with a bunch of uh, storefronts with kind of a one-step entrance, which doesn't work very well for wheelchair users. Um, so uh, Sarah and, and team created these um, ramps that worked really well to adapt that environment. So the one-step entrance was accessible to wheelchair users, but it also became integrated um, into the environment um, itself, right? So it was then used by other bodies, other people, such as skateboarders, such as pedestrians wanting to have a conversation, um, such as folks um, stacking the, the um, ramps up um, uh, on top of each other and wanting to take, a, take an image or a, a photo. Um, so I think of this as uh, an example of how, you know, our framing of disability can really um, in, impact this kind of kinscape, right, uh, of, of who's interacting with disability design. You know, disabled people are, are um, benefiting and using the designs, but it's when it's taking a little bit more critical stance, we're also, um, as Sarah says, editing a city landscape and creating new ways um, for people to interact in that space, right? And, and inviting different bodies into the experience of that design. Um, so I think with probably the last two or three minutes, I have lots of examples, but I'll just show some selected uh, trends uh, uh, examples. So for us looking at um, archives, we've been studying very uh, intentionally the Helen Keller archive um, which is, uh, in my mind, one of those kind of flagship accessible um, archives that centers um, <clears throat> the blind experience. So it's completely decked out with um, lots of accessible features. And specifically, um, when it comes to image description, um, the, the image descriptions are so rich that you almost, I mean, uh, many times you kind of feel like you're right there in the archive. Um, so that's a very functional way of looking at um, uh, disability, right? And thinking about, well, what needs to happen in order to equalize an experience um, that's typically foreclosed for certain populations. Um, on the other hand, a, fr a friction is kind of, well, how can we, how can we uh, you know, think about design as something that actually draws attention to, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a kind of a frictive way, social problems, right? So my, a lot of my friends uh, who are wheelchair users uh, have stories of people grabbing the back of their wheelchair and helping them, you know, un unasked, right, across the street, 
Um, so there have this kind of been this trend of wheelchair users that create these um, chair covers with spikes on them just to, um, you know, uh, be a little punk rock and then also raise awareness of, you know, what the social faux pas are and also of, of lived experience, right? So I just find it really interesting, um, this intersection. Um, I'll show just one more example and then we can, we can move forward. Um, so another tension is this idea of limitation versus identity. So when we're thinking about blindness, again, as, as a functional limitation, um, then technology tends to um, uh, try to fill in the gap between a body and an environment, right? Um, <clears throat> and what this project is, Seeing AI, done by Microsoft, uh, is it's, um, it's an AI software that can be downloaded on smart devices that basically it, it audibly describes the built environment. Um, so it works with currency, it works with labels, it works with social um, situations. If you were sitting with a friend, it'll describe who's on the other end, um, thus kind of attempting to normalize or equalize um, an experience, a visual experience of the world. Um, and on the other end of that spectrum is this idea of identity, um, where when we think about disability identity, specifically deafness in this case, um, as a unique culture, right, as something that can be valued, um, <clears throat> just like other, other cultures um, and identities, then the ways that we design and the environments that we design actually start to change completely based on those embodiments and those identities. So Deaf Space is this project piloted through Gallaudet um, that looks at remapping and restructuring architecture based on deaf experience. Um, so in this image, um, it's just an example of one retrofit or one design alteration that they've done, which is making hallways much wider um, to allow for comfortable um, sign language uh, communication, right? And they've created this robust des uh, design framework um, for, for doing so. Um, so if I can kind of jump ahead, oops, I'm going to skip that video. Um, the, the point that I'm trying to get at, and I think if we can take anything um, from this talk and, and panelists uh, today is kind of moving from point to periphery, um, just like the toe, right? You know, I was, I was thinking about everything and then all of a sudden my consciousness was funneled down into this very specific point that then determined action. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and important to kind of think about how the framing of disability um, and design for that matter become these points that, that really, you know, that frame and um, create opportunities and then foreclose other opportunities. Um, so when we think about and have these discussions on disability and design, it's also important, I think, to go back up to the surface and realize that things like design, things like disability don't have stable definitions. Um, and definitions that really fit across different cultures neatly. Um, so it's kind of a challenge to kind of move in between um, and question how disability and design is being framed um, or are being framed in conversations in order to kind of critically understand um, what we're seeing and what we're engaging with. Um, so yeah, that's my, my quick uh, scan and I'm happy to, to stop sharing and we can move forward. Thanks, Josh. Uh, that was a really good, um talk and set up for the for the afternoon. It's good to keep what Josh said in mind, I think, as we move forward in the next couple talks and thinking about archives. Uh, this talk specifically is going to relate to the Society of American Archivists guidelines for accessible archives for people with disabilities, which was approved in 2019. 
And to present that um, are three archivists. Um, and let me introduce them now. And as I do that, you know, they shared a screen. I'm gonna pause for a second and make sure that, um, that uh, good. I just wanna make sure the, uh, the ASL interpreter is also visible. Um, so I'm gonna introduce them in the order they're gonna be speaking. Uh, Michelle Gans, and, and by the way, the, been working with these three archivists, great archivists, wonderful people, and it's been a real thrill to, to be working with them on this project. Uh, Michelle Gans is a mid-career archivist currently at History Factory. She's been active in SAA since she was new to the field. She's been a mentor for over 12 years and served on a number of task forces, steering committees, and appointed positions. She adheres to a primary goal of providing opportunities for her peers to contribute and lead. She has piloted a number of section-based programs, including a webinar series and a leadership training model for the accessibility and disability section. Her motto has always been, no archive is complete unless all voices are heard. DEI is all about recognizing that not everyone moves through the world like I do, and the right thing to do is to allow people to move through the world in a way that works for them. Sarah White has co-chaired the 2018-2019 SAA Task Force to revise best practices on accessibility. In February 19, SAA approved the revised guidelines for accessible people for, dis for, for people with disabilities. The task force also stimulated the establishment of the SAA Accessibility and Disability Section, which she served on the steering committee. An active SAA member since graduate school, she earned, she earned her MA in Library and Information Studies with an archives concentration from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a BA in History from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And lastly on this panel is Dr. Lydia Tang. Dr. Lydia Tang has been the archivist at the Stephen O. Murray and Keelung Hong Special Collections at Michigan State University since 2015. Previously, she was an archivist for the Music Division of the Library of Congress. She received her MLIS and Doctor of Musical Arts degrees from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She was recognized by the Society of American Archivists with the 2020 Mark A. Green Emerging Leader Award and three SAA Council resolutions for her work on the task force to revise best practices for accessible archives for people with disabilities. The Archival Workers Emergency Fund and the Accessibility and Disability Section. So, Welcome, Michelle, Sarah, and Lydia, and um, take it away. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. So, um, Michelle, would you like to go ahead? Sure. So, in 2008, the SAA decided to create a joint task force to create a set of guidelines for best practices for accessibility in archives. In order to accomplish this, we created a survey which allowed us to identify the most important needs of the community at that time. And at that time, we opted to, to really focus on physically getting access to archives. Um, we did also look at uh, how, how uh, people with visual disabilities interact with archives and how people with hearing disabilities uh, identify or I interacted with archives. And the interesting thing that came out of this is we created the first guidelines for accessibility and disability 
and tended to focus completely on the physical accessibility of the archives for people with physical disabilities. And so we actually ended up leaving out the, uh, the invisible disabilities, including my own, of being hard of hearing. The one the interesting thing that did come out of the survey is that people felt like accessibility was being taken into consideration into design of their spaces at that time. However, we have come to realize that what we considered to be great accessibility in 2008 was near not nearly enough. And so it's great to see that we're taking this into consideration at the educational level. Um, the other thing that we realized is that we, uh, we needed to create more awareness. So we wrote a couple of different articles, one talking about the survey and then one talking about the results of the steer of the uh, joint task force. Some of the things we did are still relevant today. Some of the things that we did aged a little badly, but for our first time out, it was really, it was an impressive joint effort. And then in uh, 2000 and 19, we passed the torch to Sarah, who uh, then took on revising the best practices. Sorry, 2018. Sarah? Thank, thank you, Michelle. Uh, thank you, Bob, for having me here, and Maggie. Uh, the one key aspect of the revising the guidelines was to expand our understanding of disability. Disability in terms of movement and audio and the visual are, those are key aspects, but it is just a a very small spectrum of the whole thing and guidelines. And therefore we included all types of disabilities, which include a person's vision, movement, communicating, hearing and interactions and even mental health. A person, and that's why we focused on abilities of which is part of the human spectrum. And this is why the guidelines core values, which I'm talking about today, it emphasizes how a accessibility is how a person, what a person shares to us so we can help move that and give that to them. And we decided to focus on having the spectrum of that be a variety of things that we share. Uh, as our disability, a disability rights advocate said or shared to me was know your abilities, not, not your disability. And disability is simply a spec or a definition and standard of accessibility, which 
people take in different approaches as needed is abilities. And I am sharing with you today the core factor, uh, core values, which is dignity and respect and considers the first uh, person first in all accessibility decisions. And disclosing a person's disability is a person's choice, not ours to ask. And I can, I've dealt with that my entire life because I've had have cerebral palsy and people constantly ask me if something's wrong with me. And that's never half the time the case. And when Hensel, a disability rights advocate, also says, I have a disability, yes, that's true. But all that really means is I'm taking a different path than you. And today, Lydia is going to share with us some of the great ways to put into place the how we our core values uh, are work fantastic and in an archives and can be helped in different other ways. So, Lydia, are you welcome to share with us how MSU or Michigan State? Um, yep, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, so, uh, we're just going to go down some of the headers for the rest of the guidelines for the accessible archives for people with disabilities, since uh, the IMLS grant uh, worked a lot off of these guidelines, then I just wanted to give you an overview of what these guidelines entailed. So the next header beyond the core values is about the physical environment. And so uh, we, we relied heavily on uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act accessibility guidelines for buildings and facilities. And um, one, one thing that we felt as archivists is uh, that, that accessibility guidelines are, are not often known or as um, adhered to for the interior of buildings. And so this is an example of a very recent building, Hunter's Point Library. Uh, in November 2019, uh, they, um, they uh, completed a $41.5 million renovation. And it turned out that their stacks were inaccessible because the only way to access them was through stairs. Um, and so other aspects of the physical environment, um, this is an example of the old reading room at Michigan State University. And uh, so in doing an accessibility audit with one of my friends who was using a wheelchair, we realized that he was not able to actually open the door. So in, in these guidelines, we talked about having needing doors with automatic door openers, making sure that it's wide enough for wheelchairs and scooters, uh, avoiding tripping hazards and obstacles, making sure that sign, signage is in print or braille and also having height adjustable tables and chairs. So this is an example of the old reading room where the desk is simply too high. So it's just not a very um, respectful level for someone uh, at a lower height to, to interact with the other person. So here's an example of the digital scholarship lab at Michigan State University. And while the desk is static, 
there at least is two levels. So this way uh, people can interact with the desk in, uh, in a way that's comfortable for them. This is a picture of our former reading room. Uh, and so you can see how the aisles are very crowded and there is no adjustable desks and uh, or chairs. And so this is a picture of our renovated reading room. Uh, we renovated it in 2017. So you can see that there's a lot more open space, which just makes everything a lot easier to work with there. And an example of our height adjustable chairs and tables. Uh, so we have height adjustable chairs at every place, but uh, we have two height adjustable tables um, as well. So uh, we can put a link to these slides in the, in the chat so you can review them later. But uh, some of the aspects that Josh had mentioned earlier, uh, again, are just in here about making sure that there's disability etiquette, making sure that that um, public service professionals within an archives know what they can and cannot ask about service animals uh, and making sure that uh, the public service professionals are aware of the assistive technology in their spaces and also being aware that a lot of people who do use assistive technology will bring what they need and to allow that to uh, allow them to work in that space with what they need and also to be flexible in their communication styles, coming around from a desk if it's too high or experimenting with written communication or adjusting volume and speed of speaking. And also making sure that, uh, that lights can be adjustable in the reading room or that an alternative reading room space could be available for people with sensory um, disabilities. Uh, so as Josh had mentioned with that great graphic of the spikes on the handles, um, uh, that assistive devices are considered an extension of the person, such as a cane or a wheelchair. So do not touch or move a person or their assistive device without consent. That service animals are working uh, and also listen to the person and meet their need, but avoid steps that can be infantilizing or dismissive or cute. Uh, so if someone is blind, don't necessarily speak louder and slower and avoid outdated terms such as special needs or handicapped. This is an example of uh, our, uh, the Michigan State University's beautiful the new exhibit gallery area. But can you see how the exhibit space might be inaccessible for someone who might, who might have a vision disability? It's all behind glass. So uh, there are things that we had to think about for enabling other aspects of assistive um, access. So uh, making sure that, just to go back on this slide, making sure that the labels and, and the objects are angled in a way that can be viewed from a lower height and catering to, to multiple senses, such as in the, in the Museum of Modern Art, this is a picture of someone who is, uh, who has gloves on their hands so they can touch the sculpture. So um, going off of uh, the content of the slide, uh, in terms of instruction and outreach, normalize asking for accommodation requests and sharing assignment and handouts in an accessible format ahead of time and also using tactile examples. So here is where um, we are showing some tactile examples. So uh, in the center is a three-dimensional printed book 
And off to the very far right side is a sound dome that we have in our gallery space. Another aspect of the guidelines is about workplace accessibility. So this is very important to acknowledge that, that uh, we ourselves as archivists and our colleagues are also disabled or may be disabled. And so about raising that awareness of our own representation and our own rights. So um, considering every aspect of the workplace location, the space, bathrooms, break rooms, communication modes, evaluations, and the organizational support. And our final section for the guidelines was about digital accessibility. So uh, drawing upon some of the, um, uh, the, the established guidelines for website accessibility, we learned and we added in this guidelines that you have to design accessibility from the beginning. And it can be a lot of work if you have to do a lot of remediation. So that architecture and the planning that goes into it is so important, making sure that there are proper headers and alternative text and making sure that there's contrast and flexibility in accessing uh, the, the resources uh, with, the, with the Helen Keller archive being a shining example of that uh, and testing it with tools such as the WAVE tool. And here's a screenshot of an example of uh, the WAVE tool, uh, identifying alternate, missing alternative text or other labels and testing it also with people, which I'm really excited that this is uh, going to be part of Accenture's projects. Uh, so uh, these are the guidelines that we, that we created. We learned a lot from many resources to gather it. And we also look forward to learning from you about how we can continue to build it. So thank you. Thanks, Lydia, for sharing the, the slides. That was incredible. And then earlier in the chat, um, I shared a link to the, the actual guidelines. Um, and I encourage people to, to look at them. And certainly, you know, any archivists in the group, but this, this is invaluable. This is an amazing document and amazing work that the SAA Accessibility and Disabilities section do. So I encourage you to, to, to look into that more. Um, what, you know, and that, that piece was really instrumental in, in getting us to even think about doing this grant project. And what I love about those guidelines, um, on the one hand, they're very practical. Uh, a lot of the stuff that, that Lydia showed, um, you know, we can implement, um, we could try to implement, we should implement. Um, but what's great, you know, in what Michelle and Sarah and Lydia were talking about was that it, it includes core values, disability etiquette. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really great that that part is included as well um, to create a, a culture of inclusion at, at our institutions. So I, I, it's really wonderful. That, that fits into what we're gonna talk about next, which, which we're calling the human experience. And um, for this panel, uh, we're gonna be talking uh, with Michelle Gans and Sarah White, who you've already met. And, um, and we're going to add Jeffrey Swada to this. So let me, you, I've introduced those two. Let me introduce Jeffrey um, before we get started. And I'll talk more about what we're going to do. Basically, this is the um, 30 minutes to talk about uh, the human experience, challenges of, of accessing archives, working in archives with people with disabilities, um, real life examples. Uh, so Jeff, Dr. Jeffrey Swada. He's the Director of Undergraduate Food Science Program and the Liaison to the Resource Center for Persons with Disabilities 
within the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources at Michigan State University. As a member of the Accommodating Technology Committee, he works closely with the university to test technological platforms for accessibility issues before they are launched across campus. Being legally blind, he has a firsthand perspective on using assistive technology to access physical and digital materials. He lost his vision when he was a child, giving him a unique perspective of viewing the world with and without quote unquote normal vision. As a self-advocate, he values the opportunity to share his experiences and promote accessibility awareness, especially in the scientific realm. So welcome, Jeff. And the order we're gonna go, um, we're gonna talk with Jeff first and then Sarah and then Michelle, and then uh, I'm gonna share my screen and Jeff's gonna present um, a really great presentation on using screen readers. Well, thank you for having me. Um, just let me know when you're ready, uh, Bob, and I can get started. Hold on one second, Jeff. I wanna make sure that um, I have pinned the interpreters and have the correct view. Okay, so we'll go ahead and get started here. Okay, Jeff. Well, thank you. Uh, so again, thank you for the opportunity to actually come and present. Um, I'll be very honest, I'm not an archivist, I'm not a librarian, I'm actually a user of these different um, um, you know, libraries and archives. Um, so with a lot of my research I do, I want to give some examples, right, in this uh, kind of the user experience. Uh, so again, with my uh, role, I do a lot of research, you know, looking up finding aids, uh, looking at website searches. Uh, so what I wanted to do with this, um, the first part, is kind of give some examples using a screen reader, um, since I am legally blind, as, as the introduction indicated. Uh, so that's kind of what I do, um, what I see, what some of the issues I might run into. Um, so. The first case study that we have is really focusing on um, accessibility features. Uh, so like what, as a designer, as you're implementing a different, you know, finding aid or a, a web platform, um, we'll kind of look at what different views might see diff with different accessibility features. So we could watch the first video. So this is a standard view of a Gmail account, uh, somebody who's not using an accessibility feature. Um, if you scan over to this uh, computer, this is the same Gmail account, uh, but using a high contrast mode through Microsoft uh, Suite. Uh, so again, you can see some of the features are kind of more faded out, a little bit harder to see in some cases. Uh, and then if I turn on Zoom text here, this is what somebody sees when they're uh, magnified, a very small portion of the screen. So again, depending on what accessibility features you have, uh, there's something to think about when you're designing a platform or a website, um, how people are seeing what you're designing. And I want to show this example um, just because, again, as if you're designing something, um, you, you might not know what the users are seeing. And, and you, what I see or what somebody else might see, depending on their computer, their setup, could be completely different. And I don't know how many times I've heard you know, designers, not in a negative way, but say like, well, I could see the button, you know, it's right in the middle of the screen, uh, but with like a high contrast, it might just not be there and be really hard to see, right? Hold, hold on a second, Jeff. I, sure. I just was alerted that uh, the, the folks aren't seeing this. So let oh, me- Oh, sorry. No, 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 no need to apologize. Back. You give me one second, folks. Okay, let's try a test. So this is a standard view of a- Just running a test. Um, okay. So I'll stay unmuted. It sounds like the audio is working. 
Um, Let's try this one more time. Third time the charm. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Awesome. Sorry, everybody. No problem. <laughs> okay. So this is a standard view of a Gmail account. Uh, somebody who's not using an accessibility feature. Um, if you scan over to this uh, computer, this is the same Gmail account, uh, but using a high contrast mode through Microsoft uh, Suite. Uh, so again, you can see some of the features are kind of more faded out, a little bit harder to see in some cases. Uh, and then if I turn on Zoom text here, this is what somebody sees when they're uh, magnified, a very small portion of the screen. So again, depending on what accessibility features you have, uh, there's something to think about when you're designing a platform or a website, um, how people are seeing what you're designing. Awesome. I hope everybody could see that or hear that now as well. Um, so yeah, so that was just kind of showing again the, um, again, what as you're designing something, uh, what you see might not be what somebody else is seeing. And there's so many accessibility features out there, uh, whether you're using a Mac or you know, a PC. Uh, so there's something to keep in mind. Uh, the next example I want to talk about is I want to talk a little bit more about finding aids and how um, screen readers might interpret a finding aid. Uh, so the first example we'll see is more of a legacy finding aid. Um, it was a finding aid that was... Um, we, we could watch it. Go ahead and I can explain. Folder number title contents one. Business affiliations here with US Sales Club 1930 business. Catalog handbag buyer trade catalog 1948 3. 4. Buy education, education family, heritage certificate self improvement essays. Lewis Lavon report card 1918. Walton correspondence accounting course. CM and Agnes Lavon 1900. So, so basically, what I was trying to show here. Um, it's first of all how fast the screen reader is going for somebody um, like who's reading with the screen reader, uh, but also it was a legacy finding aid, so it probably was typewritten at some point. It was scanned in. Uh, there was some work done with OCR to try to help uh, make it more um, uh, readable by a screen reader, uh, but not quite um, giving you the full picture with the screen reading uh, device. Uh, the next one we'll take a look at um, is actually going to be a, a a a Word document. And it's very visually appealing, um, but what we'll see is the screen reader, you know, kind of follows paths, right? So what it's going to do is it's going to read down the column, not across, and it, it doesn't seem like a big issue. But try to envision, um, you know, understanding the finding aid um, when you get this kind of feedback. So we could watch this video. So here's an example of something that just looks visually nice, but doesn't work very well with the screen reader. It reads down the column, but doesn't necessarily make any sense to somebody reading with a screen reader. Box one, box two folder, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So again, what you see there is that, you know, if you close your eyes, oh, go ahead. All the numbers is first, it? but it never got to the yep. title. So somebody using a screen reader has no idea what these numbers are for. 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56 box title, meeting Minnesota Designs, Women's Paper Articles, Correspondence Lyrics, Correspondence Newspaper Articles, Photos, Photos. Yeah, so, so what you'll um, so that wasn't, you know, you know, again, it looks great, um, but it doesn't really read properly with the screen reader. Our next example I want to show, um, you know, a table of contents. You know, that's really simple. Um, you know, you might not think there'd be any issues with the screen reader, but let's see how a screen reader 
um, interprets just a, a traditional table of contents. So we'll look at this next video. Most of the papers of SS 683, table of contents. Summary information period repeated 114 times, four period repeated 118 times, four period repeated 106 times, four period repeated 117 times, five. And so that, again, all those periods, right? You don't think the screen reader will pick up on it, but it reads everything you put there, depending on how you format your finding aid, right? And I've, this one here said you have 145 periods. Um, I've seen ones that go period, 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 and this read off every single period, right? Depending on if there's a space between the periods or not. So as you, even as you're developing like a finding aid, there's something to keep in mind, again, how will the screen reader interpret it, right? Um, so just to help with the, the, the accessibility to that of the, the user. So what we're going to do, what I want to do next is show some examples now, searches, right? So if you're trying to search for contents, you know, you know some kind of, um, you just if you go to a library or archives website and you're trying to search for something, the first example we'll see is uh, Preservica. And, and again, as an example, it reads down the column, right? So I typed in a content search and this is what I heard. So we did a search here uh, on this website. Uh, what you'll notice is with a screen reader, we have no clue what we searched for, what our results were, because it's reading down the side first. Digital collections, home, collection items, news policies, AHCMA, contact, browse archive, music archive, symbol plus filter, 19 total results, incomplete archive, button group show selections, list, table, tile active view, symbol active view, active view, symbol, symbol, refine your selection, date range, 1960s, 4, 1970s, 2, 1890s, 1, 1900s, 1, shape like more, format, black and white photographs, 13, color photographs, 2, format, black and white photographs, 13, color photographs, 2, collection, AF, 11, AF, biography, 4, subject, actors, 4, guitars, 4, music, 4, theaters, 4, so again, you know that again that really read down the column, which that's good information to know. But it was really hard for me to navigate to find out what the actual content was that I tried to search for. Right. Uh, the next example was from Archive Space, and it's to be a little bit more of a, a better example. It does a really good job with all text, you know, you know with the logo for Archive Space. Gives a little bit of orientation um, to the content, but then it actually tells me what the content is. So we could look at this video. Uh, this is going to show how uh, a screen reader navigates search results for archive space. Archive space public interface, archive space logo, repositories, collections, digital materials, unprocessed material, subjects, names, record groups, search the archives, new search, refine search, search all record types where, keywords, music, show results, 110 of 29, name content, 1, 2, 3, sort, Kathleen Hanna papers, collection, box, 4, identifier, MSS 271, abstract Kathleen Hanna was an early instigator of the riot geo. So that was a really great example, right? So it, it allowed me to search um, and, and get content um, and orient me, but it, it, it didn't give me a lot of extraneous information that really just kind of confused you as you're trying to read through it. So that was a really good example of um, you know a screen reader working well with a, a web interface. Now, the last example I wanted to show was more about a digital object, right? So a lot of times you know, we talk about finding aids or websites, um, but I, I just searched for a random digital object, right? Um, and uh, let's see what it actually came up with in this next video. I'm trying to look at a digital object, uh, but what I'm finding with my screen reader, since I can't see the screen, it, there's really no image description. And it doesn't really give me, the, give me the full depth of what this image is trying to show a visually sighted person. It just skips around with random content and doesn't really tell me a lot about the actual image I'm searching for. 
Boston History Center Digital Collections. Home. Collection items. News policies. AHCB. Contact. Browse archive. Archive symbol. Pica 23,200. Bump to type. Asset and folder. Zucker Hillside Theater. Browse archive. Period. Zucker Hillside Theater. Pica 23,200. Simple download. Download button group. Show metadata. Active view. Active view. Active view. Pica 23,200. Item description. Identifier. Unknown. Title. The Music Man 1969. Description. Date created. 1969. Date created range. 1960s. Collection. AF. Collection. 0040043. Collection. Zucker Hillside Theater. Subject. Theaters. Subject. Theatrical Productions. Subject. Subject. Actors. Subject. Actresses. Subject. Parks. Subject. Arts and Crafts Theater. Subject. Publisher. Item type. Image. Format. Required citation. Rights. Show more. Zoom in. Zoom in. Zoom out. Zoom out. Go home. Go home. Toggle phone page. Toggle phone page. Rotate left. Right. So yeah, so again, it gave me a lot of kind of background information, right? But it, without being actually able to see the object, I had no idea what the object actually was, right? So it kind of emphasizes the importance, right? What is the screen reader actually reading? Um, you know, it, there should be some kind of description of the item or something to really make it a little bit more meaningful. Uh, to the, the person who's trying to search. So the whole point of kind of this first section for me was just to kind of highlight, right, accessibility is really challenging. It's something that is, is kind of, you know, you have to kind of keep working at. Uh, what works for me might not work for somebody else. Um, so it, the more functionality you could build into your systems to be kind of flexible, um, it, it's a lot better, right? You know, sometimes you'll see with uh, finding aids, they'll have them both in Word versions, PDF versions, and even HTML, right? So the more flexibility you could build into it, the better it will work, right? Because again, what didn't work for me in these demos might work for somebody else using a completely different screen reader. So it, it's really, again, just something to think about as you're designing these different platforms. So that's my section. I think next we'll have, is it Sarah? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, um, you know, just kind of thinking about that for a second, that is, yep. it, it, it's really fascinating to, to, to watch that. And as someone, you know, that works in archives and, you know, it, we, all, we all are familiar with finding aids and image descriptions, but it really brings home the point about different platforms and different applications that, that may have these and, and just, how challenging it can be for screen readers. Um, that was really interesting, Jeff. Uh, yes. in, in, you know, we, we think about the researcher experience and then tying this into what Sarah's gonna talk about, we, we need to also remember as a person using archives are archivists. So Sarah's gonna talk a bit about um, the professional perspective um, in particular with invisible disabilities. So Sarah. Thank you again. I most of my archives experience has involved advocacy work. And that advocacy work has started when I was in graduate school and worked on the joint working group um, for accessibilities. And since doing that, I've also had the ability or to work on a panel that was working with the um, Society of American Archivists on re-imaging the um, archives and how the um, in, uh, invisible disabilities worked for um, individuals. 
or how it went. And after giving a being on that panel and giving a presentation on both temporary and invisible disabilities, I had an, people come to me and share that how their invisible disabilities went with in archives. And one of that can be assumptions made by individuals on how can you do something that you're perfectly capable of doing, but because you might be looked at upon based on, for instance, I've dealt with cerebral palsy and I have dealt with physical issues um, with my hand, but it some people take that as a having cognitive issues that aren't there or just making assumptions about one. And after that panel discussion, I had one person in particular come to me and say they had just been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and they were worried what was going to happen if they had to acknowledge that they were had had to admit that they had rheumatoid arthritis, were they going to be discriminated against? And how was that going to affect them in their profession? And that is when I continued to think that disabilities don't exist. And I felt that way for a long time because I myself have dealt not just with cerebral palsy, but with epilepsy. And that is how I can sometimes get nervous with certain things because, oh no, what if I have a seizure during a presentation? And I've just dealt with that my entire professional career. And rheumatoid arthritis could be a problem for somebody too if they felt, oh, well, what if I do? And I thought, no, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to think in terms of what Robert M. Hensel, a favorite disability rights advocate of mine, says, I choose not to place dis in my abilities. And I encouraged her to think that way, not this and my abilities. And that is because I believe not to think this and any or every person because we continue to have abilities. And I'm continuing to help strengthen people's abilities and share their, because in that working on for the, uh, guidelines that I just helped work on the uh, for accessibility in archives because it is focusing on abilities for individuals. And that is why when talking to her, I was hoping that she would think of it as abilities and choose not to look at it as the dis. And thank you again for having me.
and not sharing my experiences with talking with another individual. Thank you, Sarah. Um, definitely. And it offers a unique perspective. Um, <laughs> been the perspective. And next up is, is Michelle again. And I noticed, uh, yeah, so Michelle's going to uh, continue this conversation. Um, also talking about a bit about invisible disabilities. And um, I also noticed that you, you're going to answer one of the questions in the Q&A. So if you want to tie that into to what you're talking about, that's that's totally good too. Excellent. So uh, I'm kind of building on what everybody else has been saying today, which is I don't need special accommodations more than I need understanding. I need people to understand that I'm going to be loud in the reading room, that if the acoustics are bad, I'm not going to be able to hear them if they're using their quiet library voice, that I may need people to speak up, I may need somebody else to speak for them. If they have a very high pitched voice, I can't hear it, and I may ask them just to have somebody else repeat what they just said. So a lot of it comes down to understanding that I have a disability that you can't see. I'm severely hard of hearing, but I speak very, very clearly. So people assume that I do not have a disability. I have two hearing aids. I'm deaf in one ear. I'm severely deaf in the other one. So a lot of what this boils down to, and the question that was asked in, in the uh, comment section was, was, you know, there's all sorts of disabilities that people have that you aren't aware of. So treat everybody with the same level of respect and understanding because you never know. And it's not incumbent upon me to spend 10 minutes explaining to you what my disability is or what I need you to do for it. I just need you to speak up when I say, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I didn't hear you. And I think that for, especially for people like Sarah, for a lot of us who have these invisible disabilities, it's just how we are. So I am not experiencing the world differently. It's just the way I experience the world. And so what I would encourage everybody to think about is how can we ensure that, that we're giving people the space to have the accommodation that they need, to give people the comfort level to ask for that accommodation? Because I talk to a lot of people, especially those who were uh, disabled later in life, that they don't even know how to approach asking for accommodations. Or if they ask for accommodations, then the person turns around and says, well, what, what do you want us to do? So it's that whole idea that I do, I am, it is not my job to drag someone to enlightenment. It's my job to do the thing that I'm doing. And if someone has more questions, great. I am personally willing to act, answer them, but other people are not. And so, you know, learn on your own time, recognize that we all have these different things that we need to do. And if you think about it, disability for a lot of people goes unnoticed. I wear glasses. Without my glasses, I can't see more than about an inch and a half in front of my face. But vision, vision impairment that involves wearing glasses is seen as very standard and normal. Everybody has no problem because everybody knows somebody that wears glasses. So part of what we're doing here is raising awareness so that people recognize that there are disabilities because the more you're exposed to other people the more you learn and the more you learn the more the easier it is to make room for everybody else even the things that you aren't aware of even the things that you didn't think about 
the, the platform is still there to give equal access to everybody. And I'd like to point out that equal access for everybody does not mean everybody gets the same level. It means that some people may need this level. Some people may need that level. Some people may need that level. Some people may need something completely to the left, you know? And so be flexible with when you're thinking about things, especially in terms of design. Things that are bolted to the floor are the worst thing on earth. What, what we need is, you know, if I can move these chairs around, can I move these tables around? What are the acoustics like in this room? What is the light like in this room? And, and the more you start thinking about it, the easier it is to incorporate it into everything that you're doing. Um, I have not been keeping track of my time at all, Robert. So I don't know if I'm out of time or not. <laughs> It's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think um, we could open it up to Q&A, in, including Josh as well. But what, what you're talking about, Michelle, really is, 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 is really great to hear and, and creating that community. And, what, and also what Sarah mentioned um, is really interesting. And I think it's, it's an opportunity to bring awareness, not to, to our own community, but to institutions. You know, if, if uh, Sarah's talking to somebody who, who's, who's nervous about approaching an employer, you know, about a disability, I mean, that's a real, uh, it's a real issue. Um, it's really serious. So it's nice to have, um, you know, this community of archivists for sure, but extended beyond that as well. Um, uh, we have a couple questions. I'll go ahead and I, I'll read it off. And then, uh, yeah, Sarah, Michelle, Josh, Jeff, um, if any of you want to chime in, I know Michelle um, is, is interested in this first one, but I'll, why don't I read it off for everyone? Uh, okay, this comes from Milka. There seems to be a spectrum of ability and disability that we're not aware of until we personally experience it. As I'm getting older, I'm also realizing that almost all of us have some form of disability, physically and mentally, that we may or may not have been born with. Have we considered rethinking the term quote unquote disability and its definition? I can see some nods and uh, Josh and Michelle. Michelle, you want to, and Jeff, okay, whoever wants to chime in first. <laughs> Michelle? Um, I just want to say that I have never considered myself disabled. I actually had to go to therapy and work with a hard of hearing therapist who helped me understand where my disability fits in my life. But I'm 44 years old and it took until last year for me to realize that, you know, yes, I am disabled, which does mean that there are things that I can't do, but there has never been anything that I wanted to do that I couldn't well, except be an astronaut, but I was never going to make that happen because I'm five feet tall. So. And I echo that, right? Because I mean, I, I go back, you know, I'll never be able to drive a car, at least until they become autonomous, right? Um, so, I mean, there are some limitations, right? But I think we have to be careful with the word like disability, right? It, you know, in some context, right? I mean, I, I vaguely remember, you know, way back when, when I was in college, right? And, you know, somebody said, well, you're Blind, you can't be a scientist, right? That's impossible, right? Why are you in this class? So I think we have to, you know, think about the word disabled as not like in a negative way, um, you know, in, in more of a way that maybe there's some limitations, right? But you know, also by being legally blind, I could hear better than a lot of people, it seems, right? So I mean, there's ways to look at disability in, in different perspectives, I guess, not in a negative light. Um, that you know, it's often thought of this, but the how it starts out with the word disability. I'm happy to add also. Um, 
Yeah, so I think like <clears throat> the conversation of like, do we or don't we claim disability is definitely complex and it's varied across different um, spaces. You know, um, so I will say like, like we can acknowledge what's been shared before and then also add to it. Um, like claiming disability can be uh, politically advantageous, it can be culturally advantageous, right? So if I say that I'm disabled, for example, at Art Center, um, <clears throat> that means that I can, you know, be entitled to certain accommodations in the classroom. You know, if I claim disability outside in the workplace, I'm entitled to certain accommodations and therefore, you know, I can kind of be, you know, participate in equal ways. So there's like a politi uh, political significance of that. Um, there's also a cultural significance. So there are a lot of folks who, so in my presentation, I was saying disabled people um, uh, rather than people with disabilities. And it's a choice um, <clears throat> that basically talks about, you know, having solidarity with other disabled people and having shared experiences, you know, not to say that they're all the same, they're definitely not the same, but acknowledging that we're part of a, a people group um, that sometimes gets included and, and oftentimes doesn't, right? <laughs> so saying that I'm disabled, um, at least for me personally, is also this kind of way of connecting myself to a broader network of folks, um, you know, having solidarity, uh, making space to work together, to think together, to, you know, act together, et cetera. Um, but there's also this huge, huge spectrum, right? So um, I think there's room for us to kind of explore that term pretty spaciously. Yeah. And Sarah, I saw your hand is up. Did you want to add to this question? Uh, Sarah, you're on mute. Sorry. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I think recognizing that disability is an accessibility standard and it focusing on how to emphasize and make available your abilities. It's not so much a how to view somebody, but how to help an individual as needed to accomplish their abilities. It, it's just, a different path that somebody might take in order to accomplish abilities. And I pretty much just use different ways of saying what others have just said. No, that's good. Um, it's good. We have, a, we have more questions um, and we have about 15 more minutes of discussion. Uh, this comes from Laura. Thoughts on how to balance between competing accessibility needs. For example, in the example of the PDF of the table of contents, all of the periods between the title and the page number, that is visually helpful for a lot of people because it makes it much easier to visually connect a correct page number with the title. But for someone using a screen reader is obviously a problem. So how do you balance? How do we balance uh, competing accessibility needs is a good question. I mean, in that particular example, right, the period is not a huge deal. Um, you know, you know, not being able to access contents a little bit more of a higher priority, right? Uh, but it also comes down to how you format the documents, right? I've seen, um, and, and I'm not a tech expert here, right? Um, but if, if you do, like I said, you know, straight periods, right? Um, it might read off 147 periods. 
um, if you have a space between the periods, um, it, it, it reads off, um, it actually reads off each individual period. Uh, but if you insert like a picture of a period, um, and, and, you know, and this is, goes back into Microsoft Word uh, formatting, um, it actually just skips over it, right? From a screen reader perspective, it's not a uh, active text, right? So it's, it, it, I guess to answer that question a little bit is it's more so, um, you have to prioritize that content first, but also how you format it could have the best of both worlds, that visual impact, but also communicate to the screen reader um, that it doesn't have to read out those periods. Um, but in other cases, it wants to read out those periods. So you know, that kind of balance, if that makes sense. Michelle, did you want to add? I saw you were. Yeah, I just wanted to add that almost every program that you use has a little button somewhere that you can click that will tell you if what you've done is accessible or not. So there's a free tool that I believe Lydia showed us where you can check your website. I just noticed that PowerPoint has a little accessibility button. I think all Microsoft were, uh, Office products do. So it's, it's a matter of just kind of paying attention and taking that extra minute to think about it and run the check. And here's the thing though, is that the more you do it, the more it'll become standard practice and you won't even think about it. And just to be careful, yeah, I mean, again, that's a great suggestion, right? And I think one thing with those accessibility features are those little programs, uh, they work really well, right? But we have to also remember that accessibility doesn't always, one size doesn't fit all, right? So I, I had an example runs to where um, for me using a screen meter um, and magnification, having really large font is actually not great for me, but then it's like too big almost, I have to keep adjusting my magnification. Uh, but for somebody who's maybe, you know, you know, slightly older, who, you know, that's a really great accommodation to have larger font on a website or something like that. So I think those tools are really, I, I almost think of them as a good start typically. And then that's where the flexibility comes in, um, you know, to allowing some user uh, kind of uh, adjustability um, is always great too, but that's just my two cents there too. Yeah, I think it's like a, it's a really interesting question and it's like, just a conundrum, right? Um, I mean, when like showing up in uh, disability spaces, you become aware really quickly that access needs uh, just conflict sometimes, right? An example is the Disability Film Festival done here every year in San Francisco called Superfest. Um, and they'll have um, captions and then also like, um, audible descriptions of what's happening on the screen and then the audio, right? And it works for some uh, communities, but then also folks who deal with um, being kind of oversaturated with their sensory landscape, um, then just started, you know, like start to complain and, and like something that's accessible to other folks gets foreclosed for others, right? And this is just kind of a reality <clears throat> of the space. So, you know, I mean, how I've been thinking about it, and I would, I mean, we have a bunch of folks with a lot of experience, you know, on this panel and then others is more of a process, right? And kind of like locating that question in power. Um, so Philip said, uh, or interesting and kind of worth worthwhile, or just, I would like to pull this quote out about <clears throat> disability being, uh, being um, embedded in eugenic visions of the perfectibility of race, right? So, I mean, for me, the question of like what access needs uh, are prioritized over others can't be asked um, outside of the question of who's involved in the process, 
right? And we kind of know who's typically not involved in the design process, right? Disabled people, folks that are marginalized because of their identities, racial identities, gender expression, et cetera, right? So, you know, I'm thinking <clears throat> typically how I try to go at that type of a question is to, you know, open up the part, open up the design process to folks who typically don't get included. And then when you come to an outcome, thinking of it as an open-ended, I think Michelle, you were talking about don't nail things to the ground, right? <laughs> I would say like the same thing for digital spaces, like don't nail it down to the ground, keep it open, continue to have that flexible participatory process, you know, moving in and out of the design. Um, so you can flex, right? <clears throat> but I think it really just comes, at least for me, down to like who's involved, right? And how are you, how are you prioritizing um, folks who typically aren't prioritized? So it's a complex question. That's great. And that's a great tie in with the, what we'll hear in the next session as well too, with participatory design. Uh, we have several more questions here. Um, I'll go through uh, Renee. I first wanted to share gratitude for the symposium. I have a disability and I'm thankful that your team is increasing awareness of accessibility and barriers to it in your schools, archives, and communities. The amount of work must be overwhelming at times and I wanted to voice some encouragement to let you know that your work is making a positive impact. Thank you. One question about prioritization. As we identify actions to remove accessibility barriers, how do you advise prioritizing those actions? Impact to user base, level of effort, financing required, et cetera, and especially when time and funding is limited. Michelle? I would recommend that you look at your user groups. And I know that the ideal is that we can do everything for everybody, but the reality is there's only so much money that, you know, can be allocated to something. So I, I the first thing I would look at is your, your core group of users, what are their needs? So like, and, and we need to think about this beyond acknowledged disability, because there are a lot of people who can take advantage of disability accessibility products that do not consider themselves disabled. My biggest example of that is the screen readers and the magnification. Older people always want to see it bigger. My dad always uses the, the, uh, voice options because it's easier for him, but he's not disabled. So take into consideration, are there things that you can do? Because a lot of the things you can do are very low cost or no cost that just make things available for people. And again, you want to create an environment where people feel comfortable asking for assistance. Because I've been in some places where I'm like, you know what, if I ask somebody about this, it's just going to create a huge mess. I will just suffer through without the accommodation that I need. But in an environment where I feel comfortable saying, hey, do you mind if I can talk to somebody else whose register is a little bit lower so I can hear them and I feel comfortable asking that, then other people see it and they feel comfortable asking as well. So it's sort of a cumulative effect of openness and, and accessibility. That's true. And I think creating the, in, in our institutions, in our lives, the, um, culture of accessibility, inclusion goes a long way for when, when we do want to implement something in our, in our space or in our digital archives uh, with the hope that there would be at that point more understanding with, with, you know, with implementing these things, knowing that it's going to take time and money um, as it always does. But if that awareness is, is there and set, uh, set up um, and understood, I think that that, that helps as well. Um, does anybody want to add anything to that before we go on to the next question? Okay, uh, this is from Mary. I'm having, 
I'm having challenges proving disability to be considered under special hiring considerations. It's stressful. My doctor's letter is not sufficient, apparently. Any advice? This is a, this is a really great question. Um, I have some personal experience with this in that I have helped some people with this very sort of issue. And I talked to a lawyer who told me that legally people are not allowed to do that. So it becomes a matter of how far do you want to fight it? Is this a hill worth dying on? Or is this something where you can, you know, figure out something on your own and move past it? And it sounds to me like in this case, you don't. In which case, I would recommend that you start talking to people, start taking up the chain of command and go, look, I understand that you don't understand this, but legally you have to give me this. And that what tends to be what pushes people is you say, you're breaking the law, but not by not allowing me to do this. The problem is, is that most of us have to learn to be real advocates for ourselves. And it's fine if you're someone like me who has no problem being very vocal about things, but other people are not so willing to do so. And this is part of that culture that we need to change. All I can say is I'm very, very sorry they're doing this to you. And I recommend you look for a job that is more exacting. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. Um... Uh, here's a question. We got about a few more minutes, so we're going to try to we have three more questions on here. Um, we'll, we'll get to what we can. What we don't get to, uh, we might move those questions over to the Slack channel, or we'll keep them here and answer in text. Um, this is for Jeffrey about screen readers. In your time with screen readers, what advice do you have for transcripts for museums who cannot afford technology and has to DIY the documents in a Word file, not a software? Any interesting free programs you recommend that also includes reading image descriptions and the transcripts? Yeah, this is a well, this <laughs> is a really complicated question, right? Um, so I guess I'll take this in a couple different ways, right? So typically, and this is with most screen readers, not all, but most, right? If you can get it out of a PDF format to more of a Word format, right? Um, that's the step in the right direction, right? Because even with that example I showed where I read, read down the columns, even though it wasn't convenient, I could still kind of connect the dots if I really had to, right? Um, but within Word, for instance, once you get it into Word, um, and I think Michelle might know more about this too, or I, I, I did another presentation with uh, Lydia actually on this, um, but you know, it's pretty easy to make it accessible um, you know, in terms of how the screen reader reads, on it, reads up on it, right? So my big push is always to get it from a, a lot of the older PDFs have been scans and those are just, terrible um like an uh, optical scan if you can get into more of a um have the uh kind of a text format um that's the best step in the right direction i guess if that answers the question from there it, it's it's not that challenging um to to make it accessible and even if it's not a hundred percent accessible um it, it's at least better than you know the scan which is not accessible at all if that makes sense so it, it's i don't know if that answers the question completely do others have ideas as well but in kind of going off of that as well this elise's question ties into that next um for all of you are there systems or features that you've come across that you think are exemplary well for me um it's, it's about flexibility right so i do a lot of work with um like again publications right so if you look at any of the major um uh, research databases out there right uh what a really good example they have is like let's just say for an abstract or for a, a document, 
Um, there's, um, they'll give you an option of either a Word format, PDF format, or a um, um, kind of a HTML format. Uh, and that tends to really, really help a lot, um, that flexibility, right? Because again, I, I keep saying for me with a screen reader or even HTML, it, it, that's really great with a screen reader, right? But some people like that PDF, you know, kind of, you know, scrolling through the PDF, um, having the two column format, right? Um, so that's even like archive space does a good job with that um, to where you can kind of um, transform the finding aid um, to however you want to view it. Um, so that that's again the flexibility. That's something that I've seen a lot with the um, databases. Um, do others have examples? It's a good question. I mean, I'll probably like <clears throat> work around it again and um, <laughs> like, it's a so there are I'm forgetting the name of it now, but I know that it's on fellowbarber.com. <laughs> my my barber has like this really nice little accessibility widget, and I'm forgetting it now. But um, it you know will kind of flex the the type size. Like it has like a nice little standard um, package for accessibility, which I think is nice for folks who want to just dive in and think about plugins. Um, but I would also say like accessibility, there are just some practices that need to be implemented that change workflow. Um, so to that you know, effect, I would just say, I mean, there are plenty of examples like the WCAG, which is a pretty robust toolkit, but there are like lots of folks making that toolkit accessible. That's for like web accessibility. So just getting familiar, just like choosing a checklist um, or even thinking about the idea of poor, you know, is it perceptible, is it inoperable? It's understandable is it, does it work with other assistive technologies you know there are like little heuristics little ways to think about accessibility that will help <clears throat> um but yeah it's definitely it's definitely a complex thing and i think like when it comes to accessibility there's not really like the access problem isn't a puzzle waiting for a piece to be put in the last place <laughs> like it's kind of like rearranging the puzzle a little bit if that makes sense that makes perfect sense um one more question, and I know uh, Michelle has tagged this one to answer. Um, to go along with Mary's question, this is from Amanda. When should you disclose a disability to an employer? Do you wait until you're hired or disclose it during the interview process? It depends. Um, I have disclosed when I feel like the institution will be cool with that. In other places I have not disclosed and because I was concerned that it was gonna kick me out of the line. And unfortunately, that is a thing that we have to deal with. I know someone who was told that if they knew that, they, that she had had that disability, they wouldn't have hired her, which is like the most insulting thing on earth. But, but it's just how people behave so what I what I always do is before an interview I do research on the company or the institution whatever it is and see do they have a diverse workforce do they have accessibility stuff embedded into their website kind of do a little bit of research and then base your decision on that um, I will have to say the only time it's never been a problem is when I interviewed with Gallaudet and actually had to tell them that I needed someone to audibly interpret <laughs> rather than the other way around. So that, that was an exciting thing to do. But um, I found that most companies are pretty good about being accommodating. And the way I kind of think about it is, okay, if I was in a wheelchair, would I not tell them that I was in a wheelchair? 
clearly not. I would have to tell them. So in that same way, I try to think of my disability as, yeah, it's just, it's invisible, but it should be treated the same way visible disabilities are. So in my case, I'm going to be honest, I disclose more than not, but I'm also mixed race. So I have other factors working against me. So I might as well air that one right out out of the gate to make sure that it's not going to be a problem. Thanks, Michelle. I saw Sarah, you have your hand up and then we'll um, we'll go to a break after Sarah. Thank you again, Bob. I would second uh, what Michelle just said. I myself have had experiences where I was told I would have been hired had I not had a disability, but I also have a physical disability or a visible disability and a invisible disability. And I think a lot of what we have to do to second Michelle is do research on a company when we do our interviewing and speak up for ourselves as hard as it can be. I wouldn't do it during the interview, but as you move forward, because we can't ultimately hide who we are, even if it is a invisible disability. For instance, I have an invisible disability, epilepsy. I was worried as we were speaking earlier that I was going to have a seizure. And that's why I got a little nervous <laughs> because I was going to have a, I thought I was going to have an aura. And what was I going to do? Move forward because it's a perception to diss someone because I have an ability. And that is how I choose to see it. And that is how I'm grateful to be here and help others see it for that, whether that be visual, mental, audio, physical, we're, we're all here because we have abilities and we wanna help others have their, show their abilities because we're not dissing them by, their, by a perception. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Michelle, Jeffrey, Josh. Uh, that was that was really great. A lot to a lot to think about and digest and keep the conversation going. Um, apologies for any Q and A's we didn't get to. We can try to answer them within the in the Q and A. And um, you know, I think we'll take a break. Um, we're a little over time, but uh, Maggie, we're still aiming to get back at uh, three fifteen. Sure, let's all come back around 3.15 and we'll probably kick off about 3.20, give us all time to get back online together. So, right. Thank you, everybody. And I have to say, I'm looking at the messages coming in. People are um, deeply, deeply impressed by the expertise and the experience of all of our panelists. So I just want to reflect back um, incredible gratitude, but also the number of paradigms as a designer and educator that are shifting and being informed um, today. 